Welcome to Bike Talk. We are the bi-coastal bike-themed talk show here. We're broadcasting out of KPFK in LA, also Florence Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, and out of WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So we are really trying to get bi-coastal with our biking. Um, today's talk in our segment today, we're going to be talking about Ciclavia, open streets, streets are for people, the celebrations where um, cities, municipalities will open up roads for people on foot and on bike to have classes, have Zumbas, have workshops, have fun, um, and really kind of showcase that streets are for people. So we've invited two very special guests um, from Boston and from LA. Um, and then we also are joined by Taylor, our co-host out in LA as well. So um, I will introduce real quick uh, Tafari Bain. He's from the Los Angeles, uh, the city of Los Angeles. He's the chief strategist at Ciclavia. How are you, Tafari? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Awesome. And then we also have Jacob Wessel, who is part of the city of Boston's transportation department and their public realm director. Um, he's working with the city's streets cabinet. It's kind of a chief of streets under the mayor on implementation of people oriented interventions on streets and sidewalks. So that means, as I understand it, living in Boston, Jacob is able to open up little nooks and crannies of the city, um, prevent cars from coming through and bringing it back to the people. And he is the lead in the city of Boston on open streets here. How are you, Jacob? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Cool. And then also his co-host, who's going to be taking the run of most of this, is Taylor Nichols. He's a bike advocate with Bike Talk out in L.A. And he serves with the Neighborhood Councils and the L.A. Bike Advisory Committee. Thanks for joining, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Maybe I'll pass it first to Defar and then to Jacob. Can you talk a little bit about what Ciclavia is in L.A. and a little bit about what the Open Streets is in Boston? So I guess I'll start. Yeah, Ciclavia has been around for about 10 years now. We've done 38 events. Yeah, you know, our event structure is, I think, similar to most open street events across the world and country. Our average event is about six miles long. Our longest event has been about 15 miles long. And our shortest event is around two to three miles long. You know, we only started, we only did three towards the tail end of the pandemic. We had to take a hiatus during the pandemic um, because we weren't doing large scale events in the city of, in the county of LA at all. Um, and so we had to take a little bit of a, of a hiatus during that period. But um, we're getting back on track. Our first event back for this year is going to be July 10th um, in South Los Angeles on Western Avenue. And yeah, you know, we've been we're really looking at expanding programming. I mean, you know, in the past, we've only done about three or four events a year. Um, but we're moving forward to looking at three years from now, we'll be going monthly. So we'll be looking at monthly, particularly open street events in the city of L.A. Next calendar year, we do four. And then next year, we're doing about seven to nine. Um, but then that third year, we'll be doing about 12. So, um, you know, that's been a matter of resources with the city. And, you know, we're a nonprofit organization. Um, the nonprofit organization partners with the city of L.A. The nonprofit organization actually produces the event. And we have a production team. But then we work really closely with city departments to implement the closures and implement the sort of event itself. So, you know, as we build our organization, we've gotten to the point where we have the capacities to sort of explore expanding the number of events and looking at this. And we're excited because it's going to mean an opportunity to go to neighborhoods we haven't been to before. Part of the expansion is uh, reframing a little bit of the structure of our events. So we will have our kind of our bigger Ciclavia events for four plus miles, but then we'll be doing a series of events that are two to three miles long. Those will be slightly smaller events. 
we're going to start to emphasize walking at those events more and skating and other kinds of you know people power transit um, and those smaller events will allow us to get into neighborhoods where we just can't necessarily lace together six miles of streets. All of our neighborhoods have that commercial corridor character. It's just not really feasible or not as impactful to be doing these events and then having them pass only through residential neighborhoods and only through places that don't necessarily have some of the sort of cultural character and sort of the, the destination character that we think, you know, helps to provide the kind of cultural life we, we think makes these open streets events really, you know, like successful. Ten years of the great runway that you've got going here, and I'm excited to see where you'll go next. Jacob, how's it you? How's it going in the city of Boston? It is going well, but we are very much at the infancy. So I think we are at year one of where Cyclavia started 10 years ago. We also love the date July 10th and are kicking off Open Streets Boston uh, with our first route on Center Street. I think we're getting to 1.6 miles and we're having a, a two more events later this summer and fall uh, where we'll get to Roxbury and Dorchester where we'll get to two miles. So I think we're a bit uh, shorter than the routes that uh, LA is going with and not necessarily getting a few neighborhoods tied together, which I think is our ultimate goal. Our program has had its fits and starts. There was a small open streets program similar in length uh, in 2013, 14, and 15 in Boston, and it died out due to some lack of funding and support. And so we have rebirthed it with a, a new mayoral administration that started last year. I think uh, I'm from Los Angeles originally, and we are taking a lot of inspiration from Ciclavia, from uh, a lot of other open streets events uh, around the country and, and, and a bit globally as well uh, to try to get some good length going. I think we're sort of what Tafari is talking about on the sort of walking skating side is maybe where we're starting. I, I you know, we're going to see uh, in about 11 days what the mix is of who utilizes these car-free streets um, and, uh, you know, similarly want to have activity hubs like uh, Ciclavia has for people that are more um, pedestrian. I think what's really interesting for where we're starting is it's one neighborhood, Jamaica Plain, but tying different types of people in that neighborhood together. Um, there's a section that is more Latino and, and with a heavy Dominican presence. We are tying different communities together um, and hopefully showing people how close they live to certain destinations or can get to certain destinations when you're on a bike, when you're on a skateboard or a roller skates. And car-free street is a great way to experience different parts of that neighborhood, whether you live there or just visiting for the day. You know, Jacob, I'm, I'm so glad you guys are on this together, you know, keeping with the, the bi-coastal bike talk idea, getting Tafari and, and you to, to meet and to talk. Be, before we started recording, Galen, um, you know, Jacob was saying that he, he probably passed Tafari on a, on a Ciclavia in, in Los Angeles. Um, I, I can't believe that it's we, we, you guys have, have already done 38 Tafari. I think I've been to almost all of them. They're, they're really wonderful. What, what advice would you give Jacob and the city of Boston that are just getting off the ground to kickstart the program and kind of get up to speed even faster? Seeing as Jacob's coming from the public sector side of things and working from the city perspective, I think... Um, I think one thing that has helped to make our initiative very strong is the partnership with the nonprofit kind of space and, you know, the nonprofit organization that kind of sprung up to sort of help produce the event. And I think just our 
be with us acting with a very intentional lens around building and bringing in nonprofit relationships, community, community organizational relationships. It has helped to both, you know, support our work, but also build community uh, stakeholders who are very passionate about Ciclavia themselves. And I think that has helped us a lot um, in a lot of different ways from when we do our events and we're producing events in neighborhoods and having those, those stakeholders speak up as cheerleaders and spokespeople for us, the support and outreach we get and the support and, and just making the word out from bringing programming to the events uh, and then also to how it leans to potential sponsorships and, and resources in terms of you know funding our events. Just building this sort of healthy world of partnership and relationship with the nonprofit space, um, a nonprofit organization who can help champion the neighborhoods. I just think that's a really important aspect of building out these programs. So Jacob, is there a, uh, a group that you're working with in Boston besides just the city? Because I, I think in Los Angeles, Tafari, um, Ciclavia was started completely without the city, right? You guys had to get the city on board at the yeah. beginning. Yes. And, you know, but we, there was an, a production organization, but not, they were a nonprofit, though. They kind of helped to do the production piece and the nonprofit formed around that function and as well as the organization sort of sprung out of that. I've seen partnerships where an existing organization like a Bike SGV in the Valley over here, they already existed and they kind of sprung into helping to produce open street events in their region as an outgrowth of their program work. And so identifying partners who can kind of play roles from outreach to help produce pieces to programming, um, that gives them ownership over the event in certain kinds of ways. And I think that's kind of important for these initiatives that there's community ownership of it in some kind of way. They feel kind of a part of it, not just it's something that's done to them. Is that what's happening in Boston, Jacob? I'm just curious, are you guys able to work with local groups or neighborhood councils or nonprofits? Or So this is a city-funded event currently, and it's being run by the city, but we have an event producer that we have hired that is community-based and has deep ties in the community. So it's been good to have that additional capacity for our event production team, uh, Shauna Bryan Events, producing things, but it's sometimes for us also helpful for the city to be a lead here so that to get the police and fire departments and different agencies or the resources of, hey, I need 15 pickup trucks to pick things up and put them down uh, with staff available. We have those kinds of resources that would be very expensive to be able to procure or rent uh, elsewhere. I, I think what we had with Circle the City, which was that event in, in 13, 14, and 15, was that was an external organization that was running it in strong partnership with the city. And it sort of died out because that city support was uh, sort of withered away. So now we're trying it just from the city side. And we could spin Open Streets Boston out into its own nonprofit if that's a route that we thought would make sense and sort of fund it in a similar way to Ciclavia or decide to keep it in-house. And sort of we've seen a bunch of different cities take different approaches to how they handle open streets, at least in the US, for whether they're nonprofit, shop it out to a singular organization, or have it sort of run completely in-house. Right. You know, the, the city partnership for us is so important, right? Like our city of LA, you know, we have a department in the Department of Transportation now and a team that works on open street events in the city of LA and Metro has its own program and department that focuses on uh, open street funding. And so both of those are hugely instrumental in helping to fund um, and helping to produce, you know, the events on the ground, like Jake was pointing out, like the depart departmental resources, 
um, police, all that would be hugely a huge barrier for these events to be completely produced on the, from the private side. Um, and we've been a bit av advocate for, you know, these events need to be part of the public public realm, right? Like these are right. public programs, they're free events to the to the city. Um, it's just that the the num the nimbleness and and the deep community ties and some of the expertise and skill sets. Sometimes some of those to produce the events, they, they they sit outside the city sometimes. And so creating a partnership to be able to bring the best skill sets to, to bear to get the, the job done, I think is part of what I'm talking about. You know, on that on that note, um, I can remember when Ciclavia first started, there was a lot of pushback. I think there was a, a, a taco stand or a hot dog stand in one of the neighborhoods that was like all up in arms. You know, if you take away the car traffic, we won't be able to sell any hot dogs. Antifar, you can probably speak to this better than I can, but now neighborhoods want it because it brings a lot of foot traffic to their door fronts. Is that is that the case? Now that we're 10 years in, 38 events in, we definitely, our team just did door knocking on this route and they're actually out today doing door knocking on our new front of it coming up on July 10th. And the, the community response on the ground has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, as the teams told me, um, you know, we always have a little bit of challenges. You know, we're talking about taking a street from people. So access issues are access issues. Um, and, and, you know, and helping people deal with those things is part of our job. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a huge part of it. But I, See, do, I would I would say giving the streets back to the people. You know? true. It's, it's true. It's true. But but a church, a church doesn't want to hear that when they, right. when they got people driving in <laughs> to, to, to like get to their to their parishioner, you know, to their to the parish. Um, and so we, we balance that out. We're very mindful about balancing that out. Even with even with Tito, you were talking about Tito's, Tito's tacos, which is the example you pulled up from the West Side. Um, and, right. and, and they they literally pulled out. They, they, they did a press hit. They, they threatened us with legal, with a lawyer. Um, they were really aggressive about being upset about it. But at the end of the day, um, our public, our public stakeholders spoke out in, in, in public in public forums to, to them about how they needed to back off and, and enjoy this thing. And then post game, they had a great time. They loved it. Um, they had a lot, of, a lot of people through, a lot of bikes through. So they're, then, so they're no longer mad at us. That's great. And I, I mean, it really had me. I'm going to be at church at about 10 churches this Sunday because I'm trying to shake hands with everyone along our route and make sure they know where to go. I'll tell you one thing I'm really jealous of LA um, is, is the, the grid. Um, the, you know, many Boston neighborhoods don't have that simple grid. And so us tying together longer lines of street and streets and figuring out how people can still have access to side streets and houses and things like that gets a lot more complicated when you're doing a weird snake of a line. And we have a lot of, our first route is the residential neighborhoods are all designed to feed the one ways into the route. So it's it's quite complex. And we've had a lot of back and forth on how, how it'll work out. But I think we too, we have some pushback, but also uh, people that get really excited. I, I think something similar, you know, Tafari mentioned Metro, Boston like LA has a bunch of different municipalities that are all in the general region and people day to day travel through four or five different municipalities and don't really ever know it. What's great is to see events like these spread throughout the region. Uh, you know, I would, one day I would love an, an event that would tie different municipalities together. Memorial Drive in Cambridge, just across the river from Boston, is a every Saturday and Sunday now about two mile car free space right along the river, right next to Harvard. And so it's really been great for me to be able to say, this will be just like Memorial Drive in Cambridge, but we're bringing it to Jamaica Plain or Roxbury or Dorchester to share that sort of experience. 
Um, and it's great to have that uh, example to point to. Yeah, yeah. I think once people see how successful it can be, and that it's proven it's it's that it's worthwhile and does create business in other places than they want it in their own in their own neighborhoods. Um, you know, the last tip I would say is just be friendly about mitigation, though. You know, be you know, be friendly about figuring out solving problems. That would also help people feel better about it. Yeah. Well, um, Tafari, I'm I'm so happy that Ciclavia is planning to do um, twelve in the in the near future, so that it's every month. So that Ciclavia and hopefully Open Streets Boston gets to be the kind of thing. Well, it's Sunday. The streets are open today. Today we can go run some errands on the bike with the kids, or you know, go just for a walk with the kids, or whatever it is. And it's not a special event. It's just a part of our everyday lives. And I, I want to thank both of you guys for all you've done in uh, helping create a safer, more vibrant community. Jacob and Tafari, this is great. Um, my last thought is if you could just have one word or one phrase about what Open Streets or Ciclavia means to you, um, either from the inside or from the outside or from the systems change conversation, really whatever, what would you have when you think of, of Open Streets? I'll go with a phrase instead of a word. When I think of Open Streets, I think of cruising on, a, on asphalt. All I'm hearing is other people's conversations and birds chirping and all I'm feeling is the wind in my face and through my hair. That's great. I'll go with freedom and self-realization. I love it. I want to thank you guys for your work, um, the inspiration too, and keep it up. Let's keep in touch. I'm um, Tafari. Let's talk next year after we've done 12 of these. Um, <laughs> Jacob, I know it snows in the winter, but if we can get some, uh, maybe a snow themed one in the winter, um, I'd be down to help out here in Boston too. So keep it up and thanks so much. And Taylor, thanks so much for running the show here. And Galen, I'm so glad you're with Nick on the East Coast. And I look forward to doing more of these bi-coastal bi-talks. Definitely. Let me know if you want to pop through this uh, July 10th or any sick of frankly. Just give me a heads up. You guys are awesome. Keep it up. Bye-bye. Hello, I'm Taylor Nichols, and this is Bike Talk. Today, we have a special guest, Jody Rosen, who has written the new book, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. And the first thing I want to talk about with Jody is I read a lot of bicycle books, but most of them are written by cyclists and they're not really all that well written necessarily. I read a lot of urban planning books and a lot of bicycle revolution books and they're wonderful books. I really enjoy them, but they're written, it seems to me, by cyclists. And Jody is a writer. So hi, Jody. Welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, Taylor. I'm so happy to be here. What made you write a book about biking? Because I'm looking at your resume of all the stuff you've written. You do have a lot of sports stuff that you write about, but it really covers the map. I love Greta, um, I'm blanking on her name now, the little girl versus Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Uh, Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. Thank you. What made you write this book? Well, you know, I love bicycles. I mean, I love them with a passion and it's the way I get around period. So for my entire adult life and much of my childhood, the bicycle was my only means of transport other than my two legs. And I prefer (laughs) two wheels to two legs. So that was it. First and foremost, my personal passion for riding a bike and maybe a little like you, Taylor, I don't know. When I'm not on a bike, I feel like half myself. I don't feel as good off a bike as I do on one. And I think that's especially true in a place like New York, because it can be kind of a pain in the ass to get around here in general. (laughs) there's too many people and public transportation is bad. There's too much traffic, but on a bike, I feel free and I feel alive. So there's that first and foremost, but also because I love bikes so much, I've always been really interested in reading about them myself. So I've kind of vacuumed up a lot of the literature and bicycles are fascinating history. And I've always been interested in that history and read a lot of those books. 
but felt that there was just a little opening for a book like this. As you say, there's a lot of books that are written by professional cyclists, sports cyclists. And the truth is I have less than no interest in sports cycling. It's just not the kind of writing that I do. I don't have anything against it. I'll watch a basketball game or a soccer game till the cows come home, but I've just never even watched the Tour de France. Well, I got to jump in there because watching the Tour de France is great. I mean, it's really one of the pleasures. My dad says the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, like you, have cycled all my life. And I lived in New York City from 85 to about 92. And I just biked everywhere. I agree 100%. In fact, you even have a great line. It must be in the critical mass section of the book where you say the bicycle is like the perfect speed for observation. You're not going too slow where you get bored of your surroundings, yet you're not going too fast, surrounded by steel and glass. It's just such a wonderful way to see the city and to learn about the city. And I think safe. I mean, New York has gotten so much better since the 80s when I was riding so much. And now with the West Side and all the bike lanes and things like that, it's really changing it. Yeah. It's definitely not like the Wild West that it was back in the 80s, 90s. I was biking around then too, and it was far less safe. Although I have to say, because now there are so many more bicycles on the roads, which is a great thing. Right. And there are also more cars. So it just feels like a pretty seething environment. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't exactly feel safe, but the truth is the trade-off for me is there's not any question of not biking because yeah. it's a risk I'm willing to take because it's just such a, as you say, pleasant way to get around. And also the best way I know to really imbibe New York and kind of even comprehend New York. If I'm on my yeah. bike, I feel like I'm connected to the city and I'm You're part of the city. Off. Yeah. But the other thing, reading books about bicycles and that history, that stuff really fascinated me, but I felt like there's a lot of a certain kind of a book about bicycles, not just the ones that are about sports cycling, but the ones that talk about the bicycle that almost idealize the bicycle a little too much. As romantic and sentimental as I feel about the bike, I felt like there was room for a kind of a book that looked at it a little bit more, not skeptically, but just tried to take in all dimensions of the bicycle story. So I tried to do a little of that in this book. So it was really fun. You know, whenever I write a long article about some topic, I invariably reach the point where I'm sick of the topic I'm writing right. about and I just want it to go away. That's not true of this. This is the first thing I've ever written where I- You want more. I want more. Yeah. Well, we're really lucky that you wrote it. I read the review in the New York Times and I think the next day, I live in Los Angeles in West Hollywood and I went down to the Grove where there's a big Barnes and Noble and I bought a hardcover book, Two Wheels Good. I hadn't bought a book at Barnes and Noble in 10 years, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's not that long, but it was such a treat to read the review and go to the bookstore and get the book and come home and start reading it. Because I have been a cyclist for so long, I do know a lot about the history of the bike and all that, but your book is broken down into chapters. And early on, you talk about the development of the bike, which I thought was really interesting. I knew that the safety bike came out in the 1860s, 1870s, and that the loft machine was in the 1810s or 20s. But I didn't realize that in the course of development, the bicycle was really so late. It was after the steam engine and all of that. And you say in that one chapter that all of the things that were necessary to create the bicycle were around much earlier, but they were never put together. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about why you think that happened and what led to that discovery, whether it was just the fact that it was two wheels rather than four or the drivetrain or whatever it was. I just found that really interesting. And then hang on to that. And then I wonder if you can extrapolate from that as to why there is so much backlash to the bicycle. Yeah. So to the first part of the question, I mean, it's definitely a curiosity, right? It doesn't make all that much sense. 
that the bicycle should have arrived this late in history. It's sort right. of illogical because as you say, the technology necessary to build a bicycle is around since the early middle ages, but yet it took literally centuries for there just to be this kind of eureka moment where someone yeah. thought, why didn't we think of that? Crucial breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? If you think about it, there were machines that had just two wheels, right. but they arranged them on either side of an axle, right? So like a wheelbarrow or something right. like that. Whereas with a bicycle, the breakthrough was to say, let's put them in a line, one right. in front of the other right. and kind of hook them up, put something that connects the two. And I think it really is the model of the horse because, you know, of course, today we still call the thing you sit on that's connected to the seat post a saddle. Right, right, right. So it's very much modeled on the horse. And that first Lauf machina, that proto bicycle, which was invented around 1817, didn't have the drive train. It didn't even have pedals. It's like those push bike or those little strider bikes, they call them, that little kids, so the kids learn on. on a bike. Yeah. And people propelled it by scooting their feet across the ground. But the guy who invented this thing in the Duchy of Baden in the German Federation around 1817, this guy, Carl von Dreis, what he did was he said, okay, I'm going to build this kind of replacement horse. He called it a running machine. Right. That's what Lauf machine means in German, right? And the idea is you're kind of straddling the device, using your feet to scoot across the ground. And so I think it was just simply that insight. Strangely, it took one guy who just had a flash of inspiration, you know? But that was 1817. Then it wasn't until the 1860s with the penny farthing with a crank. And then it was another 10 years until they added the drivetrain. I mean, it just seems like, oh my God, you guys figure this thing out. For sure. A long, long process of trial and error. <laughs> in hindsight, you're like, what the hell, guys? It's right there. It's right there. But yeah, it was in 1885 that we finally got the so-called safety bicycle where they right. hooked up the drivetrain and you had the diamond-shaped frame and the two wheels. Well, first, they weren't quite equal size. They were close to equal size. But very soon after the invention of the safety bicycle, you had two equal size wheels. And suddenly you had a bicycle, which indeed was safe, unlike right. the penny farthing with a huge front wheel and the little one in the back, because even mounting one of those things is tricky. I don't know if you've ever tried to ride one. You know, I never but- have ridden one and I would love to try. Me too. I haven't ridden one either. Although back then the thing was people were very prone to what they called doing a header, pitching over the handlebars, right? Yeah. I'm very unscared on a yeah. bicycle, often to my detriment. Yeah. But I think on a penny's farthing, I'd be freaked out. And of course, the penny farthing, as you say, had the drive right on the wheel itself, which right. is an inefficient way to move a machine and an unsafe one. So yeah. so yeah, it took a long time for this to happen. And I think this is part of the reason why one thing we see in the history is people imagining that the bicycle existed earlier in history. So there's been lots of kind of hoaxes and people proclaiming that they knew that there were bicycles in antiquity or Egyptians were riding around on bicycles because it just feels illogical to us that there should have been a time when there wasn't a bicycle. Oh, I love the bit about the bicycle window in England. But see, see, there was a bike a long time ago. And I don't know that we know actually what that was, do we? No, there's this weird piece of stained glass, which is in a church in a place called Stoke Poges in Buckinghamshire. You have to love England. Stoke Poges, Buckinghamshire. I mean, it's just like... I know, I know. All these names. (laughs) No, no, it's not Lansing. (laughs) Exactly. This is like one of these beautiful country churches. It's such an evocative place. And they have this piece of stained glass. They're depicting some kind of, looks like a cherub or like some sort of enchanted being. Mm -hmm rattling some kind of device, which looks like it might be a two-wheeled device. So people took this thing and the providence of that, that thing was created in maybe the 15th century, maybe the 16th century, something like that. No one knows much about that piece of stained glass, right. but because it looks kind of, sort of like a bicycle, people for years pilgrimage to this church in order to look at this thing and say, hey, there's the first bicycle. 
again, they couldn't accept the fact that the bicycle is relatively recent invention. It doesn't add up. Right. I wonder if you can connect the fact that the bike was so late to this idea of bike lash. We often hear about people pushing back against the bike first when the horse was around. And of course, now with the car and all of that. And I wondered if it occurred to you, because it sort of occurred to me a little bit reading the book, that maybe that had something to do with this idea of we all missed the boat on this thing. So therefore, we're angry at the bicycle or something, because it's really amazing. Some people hate bikes and hate people who ride bikes. And I just have never understood that. That is really interesting. I hadn't ever thought of that, that it's relatively late arrival might be behind the idea that the bicycle is like illegitimate or something. It could yeah. be because among other things, I point out that the steam locomotive was invented like 15 years before we got the bicycle. And the year that the safety bicycle was built, 1885, is the same year that Carl Benz, the guy who we know from Mercedes Benz, Right. He created his first motor wagon that year. So right. the fact is the bicycle, it sort of was an anachronism at birth. And so you may be right. That might have heightened the idea or the feeling among certain people that the bicycle has no right to be on the road. Because yeah. definitely right from the beginning, there was resistance to it back in 1819 when the bicycle first reached, for instance, London, where there were a lot of these, what they called velocipedes or these laugh machines had different words in different countries. But people thought that the roads were rightly the domain of horse-drawn carriages right. and horses. And sidewalks, pavements were where people walked around. So the bicycle had no rightful claim place. to any place, right? Yeah. And that has definitely continued straight through to the present day. Right. So we see those same arguments about the illegitimacy of the bicycle on the road is exactly what we see today. And that was arguably the fiercest backlash to bicycles are still ongoing, but it definitely was in the period of the 1890s during the great right. turn of the century bicycle boom, when you had suddenly millions of people on bicycles, people from all walks of life. And they were definitely viewed as both a menace to horse-drawn vehicles, right. to people's life and limb, and also a threat to the social order because right. suddenly you had women riding around on them and working class people. And there was a lot of moral panic over the bicycle in this period. Well, I blame a lot of that. Do you know John Forrester? Do you know who that is? Who's that? He's a bicycle advocate who in the 1970s and 80s fought very hard to not create separate infrastructure for bicycles and wanted bicycles to act more like cars. And that's how you and I probably ride the bike. As a vehicular cyclist, we ride our bike like we would drive a car. But he was very prominent in arguing that bikes shouldn't have their own space. And I think now we are finally coming out of that, where we are understanding that bikes need their own space. We see that a lot in Europe. My wife is Spanish from Barcelona, and we spend a lot of time there. And the city of Barcelona has changed drastically in the 20 or so years that I've been going there. And now they have carved out a little bit of space almost everywhere for safe biking. And that means that people besides you and me and Lance Armstrong can yeah. ride their bike to pick up a loaf of bread, a bottle of wine, or something like that, get a coffee. Maybe that's your next book to talk about something like that, because I really feel like he set us back years it's absolutely the case that we need this infrastructure. And the cities that are bicycling cities, famously the places in Northern Europe, like Copenhagen and Co Amsterdam. Right. Yeah. One thing that's important to recognize about those places is they formerly were car cities, you know? Right. right. So people tend to think of them, oh, that's just Northern Europe. No, there was policies that were implemented and there was activism that brought about those changes. And now those places are so pleasant to be in and safe places to ride your bike. And they ride them in all sorts of weather up there. And all the reasons that are usually thrown at cyclists about you can't possibly commute on a bike because what if you get wet in the rain or what if you're sweating and you're at work? 
it's not an issue in these places because they have the proper infrastructure. They have safe places that are separated from the roads where the cars run. But it's definitely true. The people who are really working on these problems, the urbanists who understand what we need in cities in the future. And I'm curious to hear what you think about how this could possibly work in a place like Los Angeles, which is car culture to the end. But they say we just need to move cars off the road in various ways, in part by making it inconvenient to drive your car. So get rid of curbside parking. Yeah. Build greenways, make it more pedestrian and bicycle and, and transportation alternative friendly. Yeah, yeah. And if there's not a place to park your car, then you can't drive your car. Right, right. right. <laughs> totally. And that's what they've done in Barcelona is just make it difficult and also expensive, but really just difficult. And that's what we talk a lot about on this show is how do we move a city like LA forward and get us out of that spending a gallon of gas to buy a gallon of milk. But before we get into all of that stuff, You have a great chapter. I don't think it's called bike porn, but I really love the chapter on bike porn because for me, bike porn was always a magazine like winning magazine or bicycle magazine or bike porn was a movie about bicycles, but there really was bike porn. And I wonder if you could talk about your research in that. There was bike porn and there most certainly (laughs) is bike porn to this day. But yeah, the curious thing about the bicycle as a mechanism, of course, is that ideally you achieve a kind of melding of the human frame and the bicycle frame, right? Right. The bike rider is both a passenger and an engine. And an engine, right. Yeah. So for that reason, it functions as a kind of prosthesis or like an extension of your body. And so there's some kind of vague, you want to call it erotic, straddling a bike and riding it around. Okay, I don't want to press too hard on that, but it's definitely an idea that captivated the imagination of people across the decades and centuries. So there's definitely in modernist literature of the turn of the century, there are some quite heavy duty passages, which imagine various acts being performed on and with bicycles. And there are genres of pornography, which date right back to the bicycle boom of the 1890s. There were photographs taken of naked people on bicycles. And now if you care to plumb the depths of the internet, you can find real bicycle porn. But one thing that's interesting about some of the bicycle porn that I discovered was that there's kind of an alternative, maybe left of center bicycle porn, which isn't just about people like having sex with bicycles. Right. Some of what you can find on these sites, people slum over the bicycle having sex, but it's actually, it's kind of like naked people riding bikes. And then the camera is just really looking at the drivetrain or, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean? So it's really, it's doing true bicycle pornography. Right, 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 right. (laughs) At the gears, at the derailleur, Campagnola. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we all know that for some people, Campagnola or, yeah, you know, it's, totally. it's an erotic. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to the bike show. There's a yearly bike show. When I was in New York, I used to go. And when you would go to the Campagnola booth, they would put the Campagnola super record in this glass case and they would light it just a certain way and people would drool over it. So that's right. That's yeah. right. And also when you look back at some of the advertisements, you see the picture of the woman bare chested with the flowing garment behind her as she flies on the bicycle or something like that. So I never really put those two together, but I guess that's kind of what it was. It was sexualizing the freedom of the bicycle, the movement of the bicycle. For sure, because among other things, it was a connection that made some sense just in terms of what was going on in the culture and in the social world during these periods. Because of course, the bicycle in the 1890s bicycle boom, famously embraced by the new woman, by feminists of the period right. as a means of personal and collective emancipation and suffragists like women who were advocating for the right 
to vote, rode the bicycles on mass to these protests right. and things like that. Changes in dress, women suddenly wearing, wearing skirts, but they're wearing pants. These, these kind of MC Hammer pantaloons. Right, right, bloomers, right. right? Hammer. You're so, dating yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he definitely brought the bloomer back, right? right. But uh, So the thing is, the bicycle was a means of emancipation. It was associated with all kinds of liberation, including a kind of backlash against the Victorian norms. Era. Yeah. So this idea that riding a bicycle, you were liberated in all kinds of ways, including sexually made some sense. And also those famous images you were talking about of naked nymphs or goddesses pedaling bicycles in space, that was just good advertising. You know what I mean? And there were a lot of bikes on the market back then, and they had to find novel ways to sell them. And we all know that on a bicycle, you do feel free. So hold on. So are you saying that advertisers used beautiful young women to sell a product? Can you believe it? Hard to wrap your mind around that one. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. There's a chapter on rickshaws and I really liked how you started, even the chapter on bike porn, you kind of started with bike porn and made fun of it a little bit, but then segued into the vulnerability of the cyclists, which I thought was so great because we really are vulnerable out there. And you did the same thing, I think, in the chapter about DACA and rickshaws and all of that. I think you call it the beast of burden is the name of the chapter. And I loved that so much because Biking has changed my life in how I run errands and do things. I have an old Bianchi that I bought when I lived in Aspen, Colorado. And I love the story. I bought it off a drug dealer in Aspen, Colorado in 1984. (laughs) And he said to me at the time, I guarantee you, if you keep biking, one of these two will live. Either you'll keep biking or you'll keep doing drugs, but you won't keep doing both. (laughs) And I still have the bike. So awesome. So that's, that's good. Awesome. So but, I want to know, was he delivering drugs on that bike? Because I don't know if you've seen high maintenance. You know, yes, I have. <laughs> I totally have. Well, it's really funny. I don't know if you know Aspen very well, but there's a great road that goes up to the Maroon Bells and it goes from like seven, nine to like 11, five wow. altitude. And he took me out on the bike for a ride before I bought it. And I couldn't make it to the top. We had to stop multiple times to get up to the top. But when we finally got to the top, he pulls out a great big fat joint. And in the summertime, they close that road to automobiles. So it's just yeah. hikers and bikes. And there's a few tourist buses, but it's like a 17 mile ride from Aspen up to the top of the Maroon Bells. And we smoked the joint. And then we had this 17 mile ride downhill. Oh, man. And when we got to the bottom, I was like, dude, you sold me. I mean, I'm hooked <laughs> on biking. I'd always been a biker, but that was just something else. But going back to your book. The idea that it really is a work multiplier is really the truth. I mean, you can do so much more on a bike. I can go to the grocery store and the hardware store. And when there was a video store and the video store all in one loop and get it done twice as fast as I can in a car. And I just thought you might want to talk a little bit about the gentleman you met. I'm blanking on his name, but it's such an interesting story of the rickshaw walla. You know, there's a great documentary about those people who have to stand with their hand on a car for weeks at a time or whatever, and they do it for a truck. And one guy says, you can make money with a truck and you can't make money with a car. And I think that's so interesting. And I feel the same way about the bicycle. You can make money with a bicycle where you can't just on foot. I mean, I guess you can with a car, but I just thought you might want to talk a little bit about that chapter because I thought that was so interesting. For sure. That's one of the chapters in the book that's closest to my heart. And it's a fascinating topic because a crucial fact about the bike is that a bicycle can bear 10 times its own weight. So it really is a good device for schlepping stuff around town. But in much of the world, bicycles really function as 
cargo vehicles or pedal-driven devices function as cargo vehicles. Right. Over here, we often think of bicycles as machines for leisure or for sport or for lifestyle. But most of the bicycles in the world are in the global south. That is the developing world, Asia, Africa, Latin America. And those are places where bicycles function as carriers of cargo, both raw materials, goods, and of people in the form of these pedal-driven rickshaws. So right. where I went was Dhaka, Bangladesh. That's the capital of Bangladesh, which is the world's fastest growing and most densely settled megacity, wow. a place where there are 24 million people squeezed into a tiny area relatively right. speaking, where there are very few good roads, very few roads, period. So the traffic problems there are just off the chart. And the only way anything gets done in Dhaka, anybody or anything ever arrives anywhere, is because they have these wonderful cargo tricycles. They have the cargo tricycles that are mounted with a flatbed, which people use, again, to bring goods of various sorts to markets and across the city. Everything you can name as high as a house on back of these tricycles weaving through the streets. And then there are the rickshaws, which are really like the yellow cabs here in New York prior right. to the rise of Uber. The town is just dominated by, some estimates, well over a million of these rickshaws. Wow are these beautifully decorated things that men, rickshaw pullers, or as they call them over there, rickshaw wallas, pedal through the traffic clogged cities. And it was a really fascinating experience for me because the men who do this job are very poor. Many mm. of them are dirt poor. They mostly live in slums, often in shanties. Many of them are migrant from right. rural Bangladesh who come to earn money and then go back to their home villages during the season of the harvest. But it was, for me, a very eye-opening experience of seeing the bicycle function as both a cargo vehicle and as labor and livelihood as opposed to lifestyle. One fact that I discovered when I was doing the work on that chapter is the fact a recent study has shown that there are between 40 and 60 million of these cargo tricycles working in China alone, wow. schlepping stuff around the streets, right. mostly urban China. And that number exceeds by many times the total number of cargo ships, cargo trains, cargo planes, and trucks in the world. Right. They don't even come close to equaling the number of Those... tricycles that are in China alone. Wow. So bicycles are playing a very important role in our economy that's hidden to most of us. And just yeah. one more thing on this is when I came back to New York after having spent this time in Dhaka, in this mega city in South Asia, it was only really that experience that opened my eyes in a new way to the working cyclists of this city. Because of course, there are all these delivery cyclists sure. here who are bringing the food back that you right. order now on apps, right. back and forth, right. delivering the Thai food that I ordered to my door. Right. Right? Right. And that's been a big labor issue here in New York recently, with the treatment of those mostly immigrants. And you talk about laborers. that at the end of the book, about the pandemic and about how they were really essential workers for the most part, but we weren't banging our pots and pans at 7 p.m. necessarily for the bicycle delivery kit or something like that. No. You don't have a lot of pictures in the book, but one of the great pictures that you do have is the picture of Dhaka and all the cycling um, rickshaws in the street. It is just curb to curb or maybe even beyond the curbs. 100%. In fact, just go to YouTube and drop in Dhaka rickshaws or whatever, and you will bring up some footage where you can really see what it's like on the ground there. And it is full on. If you love cities, I recommend going to a place like Dhaka because right. it is an experience of maximum city. It's city to the nth degree. Right. And there's tons of problems there, many of which are caused by the places in the West. A lot of the problems that they have on the ground there are the fault right. of this country and our leaders. But it's really also a beautiful and amazing place. And to be in a place where there's just pedal-driven vehicles as far as the eye can see is right. an eye-opening experience for those of us who live in places like New York and LA, which are really car cities. So how long have you been working on the book? Oh, dude, I don't know <laughs> if you want to even know the answer to that question. <laughs> Way too long. 
one answer to that is I've been working on it my whole life in a sense sure. because I've been thinking about these things, but I think I got the book deal like eight years ago oh, okay. and I got a couple of extensions. Sorry, I need a little more time, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, but I got to tell you, it is so worth the wait. It's such an enjoyable read and each chapter opens a new door and somehow each chapter, that door brings us back to our own sort of experience with the bike, whether it's porn and being vulnerable or the beast of burden or whatever. How come you didn't, or did you go to the Netherlands and Copenhagen and Amsterdam? Did you go there at all? You didn't really talk about that much in the book. I've been to those places, but also that's an example of a thing, like there's been so much writing about that. And so in early sketches of the book, and I think maybe even in the book proposal that I used to sell the book to my publisher, I might've said that I was going to have a chapter about that stuff. But I decided at some point pretty early on that I didn't want to do that because that's one of these stories that's been told a lot. Right. And you know what I mean? So we all know that there are these places in the world that are like that. And I mentioned a little bit about Amsterdam. I have this weird chapter in the book about bicycles that get drowned in waterways. Oh, yes, of course. Chucking bikes into canals and things like that. So I talk about the bicycle fishermen in Amsterdam, whose job it is to extract the bikes that have been dumped in the canals from out of the canals, right? So I did some sneaky things in the book along these lines, like the 1890s bicycle mania, this period where there was this great bicycle boom and the bicycle was the cause of all this backlash and moral panic. There's been so much written about that, that I was like, how do I avoid just saying all the same stuff? Yeah, just to rehash what's already been said, right? Right. So what I decided to do was just have this anthology of excerpts from the popular press in the period. You get the unmediated voices from the period. So I didn't have to just write my way around and say the same thing everybody's been saying in all these books all the time. Yeah. So that's the answer to that question. Going to the idea of the canals in Amsterdam and people throwing the bikes in Los Angeles, I imagine it's in New York too. The situation of unhoused people has gotten so dramatic. And Los Angeles just passed an ordinance that made it illegal to fix or sell a bike on the sidewalk. And when you go past some of these encampments where there are two or three or four tents or maybe even more, the amount of bicycles they have at those encampments is incredible. They have sometimes 20 or 30 bike frames and things like that. And the ordinance was passed, I'm sure their thinking was, as a way of stopping bike theft and things like that. A lot of the bicycle advocates are against that ordinance and didn't want it to be passed. And I have often felt that the bicycle is a great way to help people move from an unhoused situation to employment, to possibly earning some money. And I wish we could come up with a way of getting a shipping container Mm. and use that as a mobile bicycle repair shop Mm. and go around to some of these areas where there are homeless encampments and helping the people learn the skills, get the materials they need so that they can get a working bicycle to get to some services that they need. Because Los Angeles still charges $1.75 for the bus, which I think is the most ridiculous thing in the whole world. Just make the bus free like it was during the pandemic. But rather than criminalizing the activity, let's help these underserved populations figure out ways to use the bikes that they have. Maybe then bikes would stop being stolen as much. I don't know. But I just thought that was an interesting byproduct of the whole Amsterdam issue. That is fascinating to me. I don't know how I didn't catch wind of this. My Twitter is very bike heavy. So there must be something that the bike people in LA are tweeting about a lot. That's like a dystopian law. You're not allowed to repair a bike. I mean, that's insane. And it does seem like that's just without saying it, a crackdown on homeless people. Totally. And you know that if it was me fixing my bike on the side of the road, they'd say, oh, he has a flat tire. Let it go. But if it's a brown person or a trans person or a person doing it next to a tent, 
that's the person that they would then crack down on. Right. And also, do they have a similar law for someone who's got their car pulled over? Well, they do in certain areas. There okay. are certain neighborhoods that don't want people selling their cars along the street. So you will see signs in certain areas. Usually it's kind of a NIMBY backlash of no for sale signs in cars and things like that. It is all very fascinating. It's funny because these questions of transit connect so much to politics and to questions of power and control a lot. And that's one of the lessons I took from what I learned about the bicycle's history and present and future in writing this book is if you look at the laws that are on the books and are passed to ground like the monitoring of various types of personal mobility, you will see these age old questions of power relations playing out very often. And as soon as we get off this, I'm going to do some Googling around because the idea that those laws are on the books now in LA. There's also a bill now in the state house about getting rid of bike share and bike share hasn't even gotten started yet. We're just figuring it out. And we're just starting to put the infrastructure to make bike share work in place. And so to have a bill now in front of the state house to get rid of bike share is also ridiculous. One thing I do talk about in the book, which is interesting is I try and make the point in this book the politics of the bicycle are always up for grabs. And there's this idea that I think a lot of bike lovers hold that the bicycle is intrinsically progressive, kind of like a green machine. When, and right. it's definitely true that if you compare a bicycle to a car in terms of carbon footprint and all these things, a bicycle is definitely better for the world and the environment, I would say, on many right. levels. But the bicycle has been associated with everything from soldiers arriving in the age of empire. Bicycles were used right. in all kinds of nefarious ways by conquering powers, let's right. say, just to shorthand it. So all that said... It's certainly true that in the United States, there's long been, maybe not always, long been kind of anti-bicycle sentiment on the right for right. various reasons, both because we're very invested in car culture here and bicycles are associated with people who maybe lean a little more left. So even the Supreme Court, our vaunted Supreme Court, things have only gotten worse there. But during the pandemic, there was this decision made in a case involving New York State and then Governor Cuomo had outlawed attendance at churches and synagogues just during the pandemic in the interest of people safe at the time when we didn't have vaccine, didn't understand yeah. exactly how the virus worked. And in the decision in that case, Judge Gorsuch took a shot at bicycles because bicycle shops were open and they were included among the central businesses, rightly. And right. he lumped in bicycles with acupuncture treatments right. and wine shops and things right. like that, because there's this idea on the right that, you know, a bicycle is like a kind of frivolous bourgeois and frivolous. Yeah. Moreover, kind of like a limousine liberal right. type leisure activity, which it has that reputation, but that's because we overlook the way the bicycle functions so often as the only means of transport for people who can't afford a car. Right. I think that's probably very much the case. In Southern California, I remember I once did some reporting out in LA for this book many years ago, and this part didn't exactly make it into the book, but I rode around town with this great group of mostly Latina women cyclists who call themselves the Ovarian Psychos. I know exactly what you're talking about, sure. You know who they're talking about? So they're yeah. mostly women of Mexican extraction or Latina women who do all kinds of bike advocacy right. in East LA right. and do work around these issues of safe streets and equitable cycling and those people and lots of bike activists talk about hidden cyclists or invisible riders is what right. they call them. Right. And so there you have precisely the homeless people or I think lots of lower income people, particularly yeah. in Southern California. Those are the ones that often when they're killed, we don't hear about it. When the 45-year-old businessman is out on his spandex bike and he gets killed, everyone knows about it and we hear about it. You're totally right. And I think you mentioned in the book, and it was certainly a lot of news out here where the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department got reported that they were stopping black and brown cyclists much more often and searching them and things like that. And it was a real upheaval, I think, about what the police can do 
And they almost never found anything. They never found weapons and seldom found any kind of contraband. And it was really just a way to harass people. Yeah, the Los Angeles Times did great reporting on that. And that is definitely true in cities across the country. It's similar reporting and studies have shown that cyclists of color are harassed, ticketed, arrested by the police in far greater numbers than white cyclists. And also that incidents of injuries and deaths are more prevalent in neighborhoods where people of color live. Right. So these safe streets issues are really issues of racial justice. Issues. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. These personal mobility issues are very much connected to movements like the Black Lives Matter Right. Well, I wanted to talk about that, too, because there are so many things that we have discussed that are in the book. Again, the title of the book is called Two Wheels Good, uh, History and Mystery. And it's just a delightful read. I so enjoyed going back to it each time I picked it up and then comparing things I was reading with things in my own life. We haven't talked about China. We haven't talked about the pandemic and how that's changed things. We haven't talked about BLM. You talk a little bit about the women protests in the 1890s and things like that. And it comes full circle to the BLM protests in Los Angeles. There's a ride for racial justice on Mondays and Saturdays. The bicycle is such a wonderful instrument of protest also. We haven't talked about e-bikes that you bring up. I think that's a real game changer. And I love the way you end the book. I don't want to give anything away, but kind of wrestling with the fixie is exactly how we sort of started on the bike in the beginning, trying to figure out how to ride a bike. I've done a couple of movies where there are period pieces and they have old bikes and some of those bikes are hard to ride. And I'm not talking about a penny farthing. I'm talking about just a safety bike from even the 1920s. Sometimes they're very straight up and down and the steering is very different. The wheelbase is much shorter. So they're difficult to ride. Is there anything that you would like to add just at the end here that we didn't get to? Again, there's so much that we didn't get to that I highly recommend everybody who's listening to go out and get the book in hardcover. I just thought I'll give you a chance to kind of wrap it up here. Yeah, I'll second that. By all means, go out and get the book in hardcover, or you can get it from your library. I want to say that. I do want to make that clear. But I mean, I guess I'd just say that we're at such an interesting moment in bicycle history right now, where more than ever, I feel like the future of our cities is really tied in with the future of the bicycle. Because we're in this era of incipient fascism and ecological collapse. And a point I make a lot in the book, there's been maybe too much utopian rhetoric around the bicycle. And I try and resist the idea that the bicycle can save the world. I try and be a little more skeptical about some of that rhetoric. At the same time, I think it's definitely true that the more bikes that there are in the world, particularly in urban environments, the better. We're living in a world where very soon 60 to 70% of the world's population will be living in cities. And we need to make the planet more habitable. And we need fewer cars in the world for the good of public health, public safety, our own personal health and the health of the planet. And the bicycle really is this wonderful tool that can do a lot for individuals and for us and for societies at large. You point to the e-bike, and I agree that's a game changer. I personally am clinging to my good old-fashioned pedal-driven bike for the time being. Maybe I'll get to an e-bike when I'm like 70 and 80, and I really need some help getting up a hill. But I think it's wonderful that e-bikes are here. And I think more people will ride those bikes because, A, you don't have to work as hard. It's not as bad on a hill. You can make a long commute to work and not have to worry about arriving, dripping with sweat. And so practically speaking, they're wonderful devices. So I guess I would just say by way of wrapping up, I think we're at a very exciting and also very fraught moment in the history of the bicycle's role in our everyday lives. And if any listener has a decision to make about, should I take my car today or should I make the extra effort to ride a bike? 
No one who listens to this podcast needs this advice, but you know what I mean? The bike is going to be the more pleasurable way to go and also better for everyone. But Taylor, I want to end with a question to you, which is something I've noticed because we're looking at each other on a Zoom right now. Mm -hmm. Are your listeners aware that you have a bicycle tattoo? Because there it is right there Uh, on your left um, arm. Yeah. What's the deal with that? My daughter is 20 years old and over the holidays, she wanted to get a tattoo So I said, I'll get a tattoo. And so we went together to get a tattoo. And I just like it. It's a very simple bicycle. And I love the spokes. The guy was like, oh man, those spokes are going to be tough. (laughs) So it's just (laughs) single speed, you know, it's a safety bike. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure your listeners know that that's happening because this is an audio medium, but they need that visual. If you have some sort of web presence, you got to upload a picture of that somehow. Hey, Jody, really quick, give us your Twitter and your Instagram and your website. I know it's jody-rosen.com, but give us your Twitter and all your other stuff. Yeah, jody-rosen.com. And I guess I'm at J-O-D-Y-R-O-S-E-N on Twitter. I try and stay off of that, but I don't always succeed staying off of Twitter. And I'm a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. When I'm not writing books once every 10 to 20 years, that's where most of my stuff gets published. I meant to start with that and to give some of your credits at the beginning more because I want to kind of end also where we started with. I think we're really lucky as a bicycle reading population to have someone like you writing a book rather than urban planners. I love urban planning books and I love the woman who wrote the books with Lance Armstrong, Sally. I've forgotten her last name. They're all great, but we're really lucky to have someone like you take such care and depth and broad spectrum. I mean, you really cover so many different issues in the book. It's a very enjoyable read and very informative. Again, it's called Two Wheels Good, The History and Mysteries of the Bicycle by Jody Rosen. Jody, thanks for coming to Bike Talk. Thank you, Taylor. I had a great time.